0: Good morning. Welcome to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. Our guest today is Rich Carlguide. He's the author of The Soft Edge, Where Great Companies find lasting success. He's also the publisher of Forbes Magazine, where he also writes a business column called Innovation Rules. He's also been a regular panelist on Forbes on Fox since 2001. That's when the show started. And he's also a serial entrepreneur. He's co-founded Upside Magazine, Garage Technology Partners, and Silicon Valley's premier public business forum, the Churchill Club. He's a past winner of Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year Award and And his 2004 book, Life 2.0, was a Wall Street Journal business bestseller. And he's here today to talk with us about The Soft Edge. Welcome, Rich.
2: Uh, Great to be here, Kelly.
0: Okay, you start off this new book, The Soft Edge, with innovate or die. That's the first sentence. Why do you lead with that?
2: Well, you know, what caused me to write this book is that uh, after the recession statistically ended in June 2009, What I have been observing is is that the recovery is not that robust. Anybody can read about that. Everybody knows that. But beneath those top-line figures, you find an economy that is actually very, very uneven.
3: Mm -hmm. And
2: so even though we're having this kind of moderate 2% economic growth, that 2% doesn't apply to most people. We're either doing quite a bit better than that or we're doing – far worse than that. So it's as if somebody put the economy into a centrifuge and it's spinning and it's separating out companies and careers that are doing well and are on the right track versus those that are not. And so uh, we're, the middle is a very unsafe place to be, and the only way that you're going to assure your future is if you build innovation into your company almost as if it were an immune system.
0: Mm. Yes, and and you have, as a matter of fact, you have a health metaphor that runs throughout a great deal of the book. You describe a health triangle, and you apply that to a long-term company that's having success. Can you explain the health triangle from the business standpoint that you use in the book?
2: Sure. Just briefly on the health triangle, the UN, uh, when the UN sends a doctor into a poor area and the doctor has to look at 1,000 patients in a week, you know, the, all the doctor can really do is triage, and what the doctor looks at is: is this person physically healthy? Are they emotionally healthy? And do they have? Are they socially healthy? That is to say, you know, is there violence at home or something that that should be looked at? Mm-hmm. Now, what would a triangle of health look like for a company? And this idea really popped into my head after I talked to Fred Smith, the founder and CEO of FedEx, and it's this idea of a triangle that great companies the ones that are able to as i say said earlier are able to innovate almost as if it were an immune response mm-hmm. these kind of companies have great strategies they know what business they're in they know their customers they know their competitors they can see disruptive threats coming over the horizon number 2 they're really good at execution they're fast they're they they keep their costs low they are efficient with their capital they use data and analytics to uncover numerous ways that they can improve here and there. But number three, they're really good at the cultural value side, or what I call the soft edge. Now, that's kind of a fuzzy side in the minds of a lot of people, particularly uh, financial people and and people used to working with metrics and numbers. But the soft side is not just a hippie side. It's really the side where you build deep trust with your employees and your customers. You build teamworking ability. You build the... Uh, ability to tell a story that is authentic and resonates with your customers, that's where you really put in roots and build this kind of endurance. If all you are is good at strategy and execution, you'll do fine when you have a tailwind. You won't do fine when suddenly there's a headwind or an economic storm of some kind because that's when your employees and your customers will abandon you.
0: Absolutely, and you're, out, you're you're right that a lot of times you know the human resource, uh, the the cultural side, the value side is is the fuzzy side. It's the soft edge, as you say, the soft side, and uh, that that that's that's for the people who want to have the the birthday and anniversary parties every month. You know, the the real work's going on over here where we're setting the strategy and where we're making the deals. But the companies that overlook that softer side are, as you say, the ones when times get tough, they don't have the loyalty, they don't have the willingness to uh, put in that extra time so that your productivity stays the same when you may have had to make some adjustments. Uh, it's so very important.
2: Yeah, well, let me go back to Fred Smith at FedEx. I mean, he started the company in the early 70s. It's nearly a $50 billion a year revenue company t- today, it has outperformed the stock market in the last one, three, five, and ten year periods. Uh, Fred is an ex-Marine. He's a uh, he's a military fighter pilot. Uh, everybody knows uh, the the risks that he took to start FedEx. Nobody would accuse Fred Smith of being a softie.
3: No. And yet,
2: Fred Smith really knows. Uh, you know. So this idea of uh, anniversary birthday cakes, I think. Um, you know, I heard the irony in your voice because I think a lot of people think that's what the soft edge is. right? And it really is about instilling these deeper values that cause, you know, <clears throat> you want to get the best out of people. You want people to put that extra 10 hours a week into their jobs. You want them to share their best ideas. You want people to be passionate about the work that they do. On the outside, you want your customers to be passionate about the products and services that you produce. And these are kind of... You know, these are kind of the result of a lot of ephemeral things that you get when you really invest in the soft side. So, if, you know, if a good old ex-Marine fighter pilot like Fred Smith sees the value in it, then maybe we should all.
0: Now, when we're talking about this triangle of long-term company success and the, the soft edge of it, that side of it, you have five pillars that make up that soft edge. Would you go through those with us? Get, give us a little sure. bit the of background on Sure. The foundational
2: one is trust. hmm if uh, and trust really has two components to it is there internal trust that means do the employees really trust each other and their bosses and then there's external trust and that is do customers trust you do shareholders trust you this is just vitally important you're not going to get the best out of people unless they uh, unless they trust what they're doing they're not going to turn on their conviction switch they're not going to give you their best efforts on the outside You know, if you ever make a mistake, and all companies do make mistakes, you know, what trust buys you is grace. Your customers won't abandon you if they trust that you're going to do the right thing. Your shareholders won't abandon you if they trust that you're going to do the right thing. Lack of trust is really a transaction tax.
3: Mm -hmm. That's
2: why it's just so vitally important. And I wrote about uh, the star of the chapter on trust was Northwestern Mutual, the insurance firm based in Milwaukee, $25 $25 billion a year in revenue. It's been around since 1857. It operates entirely with a commissioned independent sales force. And, you know, when uh, when you have 10,000 financial reps out there, uh, they could be selling a lot of different products. They don't necessarily have to be selling yours. Mm-hmm. And that's why trust is so vital, and Northwestern Mutual just goes to extraordinary lengths to build those bridges of trust.
0: Yeah, and, you know, it's not mutually exclusive. The two groups that you were talking about, the, tr- the internal trust between bosses and employees and then the the trust between customers and the company, because if you don't have that internal trust, a lot of times the employees aren't going to be empowered to uh, to make good on mistakes and to do the things that endear or engender the customers to the company, so they go hand in hand, really.
2: Well, yeah, you're so right about that, Kelly. And then you think about somebody, you know, somebody who's selling. Now, sales is tough. Selling life insurance is tough. Uh, nobody wants to buy life insurance. Nobody wants to think about it. It's not because it's a bad product. It's just that, you know, nobody gets up in the morning. Uh, wanting to buy life insurance, and even the CEO of Northwestern Mutual says that. Right. So you need a sales force that really feels conviction that what they're doing is selling a selling a service, selling a product that at some point in some people's lives is going to make all the difference. You know, and it's this conviction that trust builds. Just imagine if you have a sales force full of people with conviction versus a sales force full of people without conviction, and you see immediately the value of trust.
0: Absolutely. Now, I like your second one, the way you've titled your second pillar. It's called SMARTS. Talk to us about that one.
2: Sure. I think there's a fallacy, particularly on Wall Street, particularly in Silicon Valley where I live, that SMARTS equates to you know an IQ that could boil water <laughs> or an 800 math SAP score or something like that. And, uh, you know, if you talk to any boss, any boss will say uh, off the record that they wish they were stronger here or stronger there in the organization, but we all think that. We think that about our, the sports teams that we follow. If we only had more talent, you know, we would be better. fact of the matter is we have who we have, Are we, and we were the ones who recruited them. Are we going to do everything that we can to make them, our people individually smarter and collectively smarter as a team? And so I looked at a, a one of the pillars, one of the stars of the book was the Stanford women's basketball coach, who's had an 84% winning record. They made it into the NCAA women's finals for the fourth or for the fifth straight year. They didn't win it, but they the, they've done just extraordinarily well over the past 30 years. And they almost always have a talent deficit when they're competing against the likes of Connecticut and Notre Dame and other schools. But they really come together as a team, and I show how she makes her people better. And this applies, you know, we all want to bring out the best in our employees. Uh, That's a noble thing to do, but it goes straight to the bottom line when we do that.
3: Yeah,
0: Absolutely. And we have three more pillars of the soft side that I want to talk about today. But first we need to get in a word from our sponsor, Benedictine College. You're listening to Smart Companies Radio on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be right back.
2: You're progressing in your career, but at a pace that feels... Slow. You're ready to make great strides and invest in yourself. With your work and home schedule, how do you accomplish this? The Executive MBA program at Benedictine College, Kansas City's only one year Executive MBA program, is the answer. The competency gained and character built are outcomes that are of immediate and future value regardless of your future path. Go to benedictine.edu/slash EMBA.
1: Are you looking for that perfect diet, that magic pill, that one big thing you can do that finally makes you lose weight, heals your body, or will make you feel better? The thing is, it just doesn't work that way. Instead, it is the small changes that stick and ultimately compound to create big shifts in our holistic well-being. Simple and consistent action is what carves canyons out of rock and helps the tortoise win the race. The same is true for creating and maintaining healthy habits and holistic well-being, mind, body, and spirit. Tune in to Small Changes, Big Shifts to hear Dr. Michelle Robin and her guests share wisdom, knowledge, real-life stories, and practical tips to inspire and inform you as you move forward on your wellness journey. Every Tuesday afternoon, 1 o'clock Central Time, on Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Good morning. Welcome back to
0: Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. We're talking today with Rich Carlguide. He is the publisher and columnist at Forbes. And I want to ask you now about the rest of the pillars on the soft edge of the triangle of long-term company success that we've been talking about in your new book, The Soft Edge. We've talked about trust. We've talked about smart. You also put teams in there. Talk to us about teams.
2: You know, uh, teams are ancient. It took a team of people to build the Egyptian pyramids, but the concept of teamwork is astonishingly new uh, in human history, really only 30 or 40 years old. And the latest evidence shows that where people blow it on teams is they have teams that are A, too big and unwieldy, Mm -hmm. and two, they don't have enough thinking-style diversity on their teams. Uh, The best teams turn out to be teams of two, Three, four, up to about twelve people. Oh. Jeff Bezos of Amazon calls it the 2 pizza rule," that a team should be no bigger <laughs> than two pizzas will feed. Now, in our house, that would be a very small team. Let's I'm afraid. To say twelve
0: people—that's kind of pushing it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I guess a snack then. You know, okay. it's a lunch. But uh-huh. uh, but the but the idea is that when you have small teams, uh, you you uh, there's no waste, and people generally will sacrifice for each other. At that level, there's transparency, there's honesty. If somebody is coming up short, uh, rather than go out and shoot the person, you know, people jump in and help. You're not going to do that if it happens all the time, obviously. Mm -hmm. But the problem is when you get up to 20, 30, 40 people, you get the inevitable bureaucracy. You get people uh, becoming lazy and trying to hide and coast on a team. And so even in large organizations, SAP, the German software company, 65,000 global employees, 20,000 Software developers, uh, the CEO has taken the software developer team of 20,000 and he's broken it up into teams of 8, 10, and 12.
0: Yeah, well, and it strikes me whenever you uh, were talking about the the smaller teams that you know they can get decisions made faster. They can be more nimble when it's a smaller group. And it also occurred to me as you were talking that a lot of times that's the difference between a small business, who's most of our listening audience today, a small business and their larger counterparts, that they um, they do have more of that transparency. Everybody has to work together towards a common goal in the business, and they can. Uh, Make decisions quicker, introduce new things quicker. So a lot of analogies there.
2: You know, I mean, large companies have the power of scale. They can do mass purchases and all that kind of stuff. They can have large advertising budgets. But but startups and small businesses have always had this advantage of having smaller teams. Most larger companies don't get it. Uh, Some larger companies are beginning to get it, as they say, SAP Mm -hmm. and, and others.
0: Yeah, definitely. And then another one that you have is taste. What do you mean by Taste.
2: Well, you know, taste is the word, it's an intriguing word, and it's the word Steve Jobs used over and over and again. He didn't talk about Apple's great design. uh, He talked about Apple's taste. And what he meant by taste was you found this perfect sweet spot between the technical world and the human liberal arts world. And if you could find that, you could create products that were not only beautiful, but products that were deeply, deeply intelligent And that's what taste is today. And if you think about your product or service, you know, if you're a a small business owner, if you do anything in business, you want products and services that signify intelligence, deep intelligence, because consumers are paying up for those kinds of products. If you have a product that's perceived as being intelligent, it looks intelligent, it performs intelligently, you know, that's the way out of the commodity trap in any business or service Mm -hmm. today.
0: Right, so it, it's somewhere there between their, uh, they somehow marry the unique with the universal,
2: The unique with the universal, and they get people excited. You know, whether I, I I wrote about specialized bicycles and and how they're able to bring this uh, this sense of excitement into something as common as a bicycle, and uh, and they charge more than ten thousand dollars for some of their bicycles, and they're used by Tour de France teams and. And other real connoisseurs of bicycles, you know that's in my mind that's just a better place to play in any kind of a business than being than grinding it out on a commodity level. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just more fun. But you really have to think about design, excitement, what my friend Guy Kawasaki calls enchantment. These are the things that go into taste. Uh, whether you whether you're uh, delivering a product or a service.
0: Yeah. Now, one of the things that you say in your book is you you give the reader a hint and you say that taste doesn't come from market surveys and predictive analytics. So where does it come from? How do you? Well, know- you know,
2: the, I'm so glad you asked that because I'm afraid right now, here in 2014, there's so much an obsession on big data and analytics yes. as the answer is the end-all, be-all that it takes uh, there are people who think that analytics and predictive analytics can take human judgment right out of the equation but it turns out that great products whether you're talking about uh, apples products uh, particularly under the reign of Steve Jobs or uh, specialized bicycles or you think of any any of your favorite products or services or restaurants just anything Uh, in the business and commercial world. You know, there is human judgment and human intuition and even human genius Mm -hmm. behind all of those great products. So the answer today is really figuring out that, that perfect sweet spot between human judgment and what predictive analytics are saying. And the insight that I got is is on Generation 1 of your product, put a little more human intuition and judgment into it. You know, make the kind of product that you yourself would like to consume. You know, Generation 2 incorporates more data data because now you have user feedback. Generation 3 still more data. And then finally, when you then you know when you're generation five or six, and you need to now come out with something new again, go back to human judgment
0: mhm yeah and and that that is so I think people yearn for that today because you said we're so overwhelmed with the analytics and uh, the last pillar that you talk about is story, and we hear a lot about story and telling the company story these days, but I'd like to hear your views on that,
2: yeah, you know um. Storytelling is an ancient human activity. Uh, we, and we've known how to tell good stories as a race of human beings for thousands of years. And the best stories are some form of the hero's journey. And the hero's journey is that we, who are flawed people, are, suddenly have to face a challenge. And we either rise to that challenge, as a hero does, or we don't. But it always involves blood, sweat, tears, doubt, and so on. And uh, those are the best stories. And a, a lot of uh, uh, mistakes that businesses make when they're telling their story is they leave out the blood, sweat, and tears. And they try to tell what I call an immaculate conception story. <laughs> yes. And it goes like this. You know, uh, customer A had a problem. They came to us. We provided the right product and solution. And hand in hand, we marched off into the sunset and all was fine. Yeah. You know, does that real? Does that sound like anything uh, that is even remotely authentic in the way the business really works? You know, don't be afraid to tell stories where, uh, you know, where it was hard, where it was difficult, where people had to argue things out, because today, you know, the the the, the madman world of of company uh, corporate communication is long gone, and the fundamental thing that has changed, even though telling a good story has been around for uh, no, the, the, the lessons of what a good story has been around for more than you know, 3,000 years. Social media has changed in the fol- changed stories in the following way: that the customer can talk back,
3: mm-hmm. and if you're
2: being inauthentic about your story, uh, the customer will out you right away. That's why we have to get to this new level of authenticity and bring the customer in, and the- bringing the customer in, making a customer part of the hero's journey. Is where the best stories lie.
0: Oh yes, bringing the customer in, bringing your associates, your staff in as part of that story, all of that. And you know, you said that uh, a lot of companies are hesitant to talk about the blood, sweat, and tears. And especially in the early days, what I hear is you spill your blood in the shark circle. You know, from a competitive standpoint, uh, they're waiting. Anybody's waiting. They're ready to pounce and and eat you alive. And so there's
2: a little bit of hesitation. I think. Yeah. Ironically, Kelly, the best stories are sometimes have to run the, the longest gauntlet within a company to make it out into the world. Uh, lawyers don't want you to tell the blood, sweat, and oh, tear story. No, and, lawyers,
0: a whole other story. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's a whole other story. But um, what I would advise uh, people to do who think they need, you know, think they need a novel and better way of telling their company's story, is hire a couple of young filmmakers who are who are good at making documentary-style uh, videos and films. And have them go through your company and have them talk to your employees and have them talk to your customers, and really get what the story is about the company and why it gets people excited mm-hmm. and have it be a little raw and have it be a little imperfect and have it reflect you know something that is really authentic to what you're doing, and uh, you know experiment in those ways and and uh, my hunch is that in ninety five percent of the cases that's going to work out a lot better. Than telling this kind of immaculate conception story
0: yes and the key there too is you see the people behind it so often we know a company only by its logo or its product on the shelf and we don't know who it is behind all that the people like you and me and that's what people connect to as other people
2: yeah yeah well so you know proctor and gamble can win that kind of a game because they have money that will crush anybody else who's trying to compete against their products And so maybe you don't do that if you're a Procter & Gamble. Maybe you do. Maybe if you're selling a Swiffer or something, you begin to tell stories. I don't know. But if you're a small business person and you need to kind of burst out of the pack and you can't match the advertising budgets and logo designs and things like that of larger competitors, then you have to take to some kind of guerrilla form of, Mm -hmm. of marketing and selling. And the documentary style seems to be it gets resonance on social media. It's true to human values. It's something to look into.
0: Yeah. Now, obviously, people who are interested in developing their soft edge can purchase your book. But just briefly here, what are some of the questions that company leaders can ask themselves in order to start this process of discovering their soft edge and take an assessment of where they are now and where they could be, perhaps?
2: Yeah. You know, uh, well, thanks for recommending the book. Uh, Do go out and buy the book. It's on Amazon now and all the other outlets. Look, if your company or your career has hit a flat spot, uh, and you feel this kind of sense of nervousness that you're not doing as well as you should, and if you don't improve, uh, things could get a lot worse uh, rapidly. Then you know what you ought to do is before you start on the soft edge, is take a trip around the triangle that I mentioned at the beginning of the interview. You know, really review your strategy, really review the hard side of execution. Are you efficient with your capital? Are you fast? Are you using data and analytics? Are you doing all of those kinds of things to the utmost? Uh, uh, Are you leveraging those as much as you can? And then also look at the soft side. How are you on trust? Is your team, are individuals on your team, and is the team as a whole learning? Um, Look at the size of your teams. Look at the engagement that customers have with the products and services. Do they really feel a sense of excitement and taste when they encounter your company and its products and services, and then look at how you're telling your story. Chances are, if you're stuck, you're stuck at some place on the triangle. And for many business people, particularly those who are really good at, at, uh, at numbers, uh, the place where the company might be stuck might be on the soft side.
0: Okay, so why is it important to have a book like this now? Why the soft edge now? Many of the things, as you described the pillars of the soft edge, many of them you said have been around for a long time. You know, it took a team to build the pyramids. Storytelling is the most ancient form of communication. Uh, but why the soft edge now? Why is it so important? Well,
2: that's a good question, I asked uh, Tom Peters, who wrote, uh, who wrote In Search of Excellence back in the early 1980s, to write the foreword for the book. And in many ways, I was, I mean, uh, that was just a tremendously important book. And, and it got into a lot of the topics that I get into in The Soft Edge. The reason I wrote it now is to go back to this. There there are two things. One, it's a very uneven economy. Interestingly, when Mm -hmm. Tom Peters and Bob Waterman wrote In Search of Excellence in the early 80s, the same thing. We were coming off uh, the the recession and uneven years of the mid and late 1970s and through the early 80s it was still pretty rough out there. So it's a very uneven, unforgiving economy. You have to really be performing on all uh, cylinders today, and that means you have to be performing at all three sides of the triangle. But I also am um, think that this rush toward big data and analytics is going to lead a lot of companies to a bad place. It's not to say that big data and analytics can't be enormously useful in your business, but if you think now you can outsource all of these messy human problems to big data and analytics, you're going to be kidding yourself. Right. So that's uh, because we've been there before. Uh, We've been there uh, with the age of Taylorism on factory floors in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. We were there. Remember Robert McNamara, yes, uh, whose analytics led us to es- led him to escalate the Vietnam War mm-hmm. because uh, his analysis said that the U.S. could win a war of attrition, and which turned out to be tragically wrong. Uh, and this is where you know analytics without human judgment can take you to a bad place. And in fact, today. It can take you to a bad place faster than ever before.
0: Oh, yes, with the speed, the way this stuff travels, absolutely. Uh, Very interesting, insightful book, Uh, and I would recommend it to anybody out there who's listening. And, again, uh, tell us where you can get that.
2: You can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, all the usual places. If you want to buy it in volume, go to 800 CEO Read. Uh, buy one for every <laughs> employee in your
3: company. <laughs> oh,
0: we've been talking today with Rich Carlgaard, the publisher of Forbes and a columnist at Forbes as well, serial entrepreneur, and again, the soft edge. It's a great value, and we appreciate you spending some time with us today, Rich. Thank you very much.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Kelly.
0: And if you'd like to learn more about how to grow your business, please visit our website at com. follow us on Twitter at IThinkBigger, or like our Facebook page, Thinking Bigger Business Media. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week.